Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm your wannabe Eight Wing Nine and A People's Theology host, Mason Meniga. In this episode, I talk with Shaniqua Walker-Barnes. Shaniqua is a clinical psychologist, public theologian, and minister. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Anthena. Anthena is a pop artist from Nashville. You can get connected with both Shaniqua and Athena and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, I have Shaniqua Walker-Barnes, and Shaniqua is a clinical psychologist and public theologian, and you recently wrote a wonderful book called I Bring the Voices of My People, A Womanist Vision for Racial Reconciliation. Uh, Shaniqua, this is a topic that I'm really interested in. I've had a lot of conversations with a number of friends from seminary about this very topic of racial reconciliation and how we ought to think about that, Um, and so I really love your insight uh, in that conversation about reconciliation, uh, I think you really bring an important piece to it. So uh, thank you for joining me. Uh, with that said, uh, I, as I ask every one of my guests, uh, who is Shaniqua Walker-Barnes to Shaniqua Walker-Barnes? Oh, okay. Well, thank you. I'm um, glad to be here and grateful for the invitation and for that intro. Um, there are so many ways I could describe myself. Um, I will start off by saying I am an Atlanta native, a great mm. baby. Um, and so that situates me here um, in at home. And that is um, where I do my work. Um, haven't always lived in Atlanta, but I have always lived in the South. Mm. So I am a lifelong Southerner. Um, I am a professor. Um, I started my career in clinical psychology. And then I heard God's call um, more clearly. I heard, heard it earlier. So I mm-hmm. ended up Um, leaving my faculty position and returning to school to get my MDiv. And since then, I have been um, a seminary professor now for about 13 years. Um, And I teach practical theology. Um, So it's kind of a broad term, classes in pastoral care um, and several classes along spiritual spirituality and spiritual formation, and then lots of classes along race and gender Mm -hmm. and justice issues. 
I love it. I love it. As somebody who is working uh, part-time in youth ministry, I, I kind of grew up in that kind of world in undergrad doing a lot of practical theology stuff. So I, I really dig it. Um, so one of the things I found really interesting, is, and I typically ask guests uh, a similar question, is that this isn't your first book. Uh, so there was probably something that you learned about maybe womanism, maybe that you learned about racial reconciliation, maybe even about theology, something that you maybe learned sort of factually or historically or something, uh, what was something that while you were writing the book that uh, you learned um, in a kind of a factual sense or in, in some sort of like intellectual sense? Wow, something that I learned um, in the sense of this book, you know, I think one of my surprises um, actually is what I start the book about is the relationship between the racial reconciliation movement and promise keepers. Mm -hmm. That was part of something I didn't know, even all the work I had been doing um, in racial reconciliation, starting in seminary, taking classes in that area. I didn't realize how deep that, that, that relationship was and how much the modern day racial reconciliation movement was rooted in promise keepers um, until I started doing the research. Mm. And seeing those connections, and then it was kind of that light bulb moment where it was like, oh, this makes so much sense, right, mm -hmm. of what I've experienced in this movement. So that was one of the things I was surprised to learn from a historical basis from doing the I hadn't expected to find. Yeah, that was one thing about your book that I found really interesting because growing up in the evangelical world, I very much knew about Promise Keepers. I never went myself, um, but my dad went like every year and it was really fascinating to find out that that was a really core piece to Promise Keepers for, for quite some time. Um, although I doubt that my dad was exposed to that part of Promise Keepers, uh, but it is interesting to know that that certainly is is a part of it. Um, it you know, this, again, is not your first book, um, and the book writing process is certainly a, a major task in one's life. So what was something they, that you maybe learned about yourself as you wrote the book? I learned that I was um, both profoundly skeptical about the possibility of racial reconciliation mm. um, and also deeply hopeful, mm. right? Um, and so there were times in which the cynic in me, and I'm very much a cynic and in very many ways, a pessimist when it comes um, to racism. Um, and there was certainly enough stuff in writing the book that deepened that cynicism and mm -hmm. racism mm -hmm. and that sense of, oh, wow, this really isn't getting any better. Like we are really deep in this, right? Um, but at the same time, there was enough that found me wanting to um, really just being convicted, um, particularly as a Christian, um, by this idea that we are called to be better than we are. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was surprised that I came out as much on the side of hope as I did at the end, given, um, yeah, a lot of the, the heaviness that's, that's in, in the book. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other thing about writing is that I'm always surprised in writing um, and how you realize that you know more than you thought you know, and you're mm. capable of writing um, more than you thought you were capable of writing. And so I always have that little bit of surprise in, in, in my writing. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. Um, 
one of the things I loved about the book is at the very beginning, there is this vulnerability that I really appreciated as a reader. Uh, and so at the beginning of the book, you talk about kind of feeling like you're not enough to have a stake in these conversations. Uh, whether it be that you're not evangelical enough or that you're not mainline enough or you're not even black church enough, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's really interesting because as a black woman, you find it imperative that your voice is heard in these spaces of recon racial reconciliation. So after you wrote the book, how has that feeling changed or not changed of not sort of feeling like you're enough? Yeah, I think it has. Um... And I don't know if it was as much feeling not enough as feeling um, more of an outsider, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Always an outsider. Um, and that just sense of, I don't belong in this space. And yet I also don't belong fully in this space. And I also don't belong fully mm. in this space. And I'm, I'm part of these various communities that really dislike each other, right? Mm -hmm. And these are all Christian communities, right? Mm -hmm. They really dislike each other. And none of them think that I ought to have anything to do with the others, right? Um, I think what the book did for me is that kind of the process of writing, it showed me the value in that. Um, and, and, I, and I think not just the book, but some of that is my own work, uh, my own personal work mm -hmm. of learning how to accept my um, perpetual outsider status, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, it is learning how to accept the fact that I don't fit very neatly in any space. And that's been part of my spiritual journey as well. And learning to um, see the gift in that, right? And mm -hmm. so I think at the end, I feel much more comfortable now just saying, yeah, I don't fit in any of these spaces. And yet I'm comfortable to some degree in all of them. That you take my hand makes me want to give this a chance. Maybe I'm a little crazy, but you're saying ready or not. Here I come, tag your it now. I'm gonna run one, two, three, and four. I think we've been here before. Leave you wanting more, cause you can't. One of the things I also really loved about the book is your historical analysis of the movement of racial reconciliation within modern Christianity. Can you give a brief description of that history of racial reconciliation uh, in modern Christianity? Yeah. So the racial reconciliation movement that we know today and, you know, the folks, the organizations that we think of as key players, uh, many of them have their their beginnings in kind of the 1990s with Promise Keepers. There were a couple of moments before then, uh, a really seminal moment is 1970, Tom Skinner gave his um, his talk at Urban Urbana mm -hmm. um, in which he talked about um, racism in the church. And so that was a really pivotal movement and a lot of stuff came out of that as well. But the 90s were when it really sort of begin to birth. And this is when Bill McCartney started Promise Keepers. And one of the seven promises was a commitment to um, building bridges across racial and denominational barriers. Mm. And it was buried down in the promises. I think it's number six or something like that, right? It's buried down in the promises and it's not how he, he started. And so a lot of men got in, invested because they were more about um, make, 
building their role in families, building their role in churches, building their relationship with God, connecting with other men. And so men got into it for that reason. Once Promise Keepers grew and it grew very quickly, um, McCartney kind of said, okay, we've got the momentum now. It's time to focus on this promise about mm-hmm. race. And so he began to do that. And he had been doing that gradually. So the first, the first rallies, the first few years um, were pretty white. I mean, they were really white. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and, but he very intentionally diversified. And at one point, the Promise Keeper staff was probably the most diverse evangelical um, organization, if not Protestant organizations. Mm-hmm. So from the beginning, that was Promise Keepers was actually putting its money behind this promise. But then at some point, um, McCartney said, okay, it's time to really make this the focus. Um, and he declared this goal. Um, he said, and by, by 2000, right, they were going to have this march on the National Mall. I think that was around 96, 97, this huge march on the, on the National Mall in DC. And he said, um, we want to bring a million men together. And part of what we want them to do is to commit to um, eradicating racism in the church by 2000. Right. Just mm. we're just going to need a couple of years. We're going to, you know, and we're going to make this happen. That's all. We so need. innocent. So <laughs> <Right>? innocent. <laughs> I mean, so there's this, you know, and, and you can look at that and be like, oh, clearly that wasn't genuine. Right. And I think maybe his heart was in his right place. But again, his understandings of what racism were about were wrong. Right. So he thought we can get men together. And if men build relationships, that's going to tear down racism in the church. Mm. Um And even with that naive and innocent understanding of race, what he saw when he did that was promise keepers begin to dwindle. Um, And so I remember in in the 90s, and I certainly as a Black woman wasn't involved in promise keepers and didn't really Mm -hmm. know many people who were, but I remember hearing about these rallies all the time. They Mm -hmm. were on the news all the time. They were in the magazines and the newspapers all the time. And then just suddenly they weren't. And Bill McCartney later said it was the turn towards racial reconciliation. It was really heightening that emphasis on race that caused the dwindling of promise keepers. It still exists, um, but the number of men who became involved in it really just kind of fell off immediately after he began that focus on race. Mm. At the same time, though, a lot of the folks that we know today and we think of as leaders in that movement and leaders of organizations that have been connected to that movement were all formed and shaped in that setting and a lot of them were speakers in that setting and so there was this sort of shared theology of racial reconciliation that was being developed during that time and that then continued to grow and continues to be funneled out through a lot of these other organizations. Mm, That's so fascinating. One of the things that I find really interesting in regards to race, uh, and I think it's absolutely paramount to keep in mind, is that race is a social construct. Uh, Unfortunately, when many white people think about race as a social construct, they just mean they they assume that that means that it's unreal, that it doesn't actually happen. It doesn't exist. what are the ways in which uh, that you, th- sorry, what are the ways in which that something uh, being a social construct like race actually makes it even more real? Yeah. Yeah. So a social construct 
just means that it is not something that exists on its own in reality, right? It's not something you can see and touch and feel. But a social construct is something that humans basically decide this is a category and we're going to give meaning to it and we're going to make decisions based on it. Mm. Much of what we do in our lives are social constructs. So national identities are social constructs. The idea of America as a country with boundaries. That is absolutely a social construct, right? Mm -hmm. This idea that we have that somewhere between us and this other social construct called Canada, there's something called a boundary, right? (laughs) Um, And that if you're born on one side of this boundary, you're Canadian. But if you're born on the other side of this boundary, you're American. Um, Even what we think of as what America is, is absolutely a social construct. These are all ideas. It wasn't like the earth was created and God said, and let there be America, right? Like that, Mm -hmm. that didn't happen. Um, It was part of a, of a pattern of conquest and expansion and finally nations kind of coming to agreement about where boundaries were, right? And what Mm -hmm. citizenship meant, right? So uh, that's a construct. Um, The way we eat is also a construct. Mm -hmm. And that's why the way we eat varies so much from from country to country or region to region, right? So here in the South, we have this thing called grits, right? That is a really important construct to us. Grits Mm -hmm. is part of our breakfast, right? Um, In other parts of of the country, breakfast is a whole different understanding, right? Mm -hmm. And grits is not part of that Mm -hmm. understanding, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But at the same time, um, the fact that I'm American very much shapes who I am. It's real, Mm -hmm. right? It has real bearing when I'm here. It has real bearing when I go out into the world, when I go into other countries, American citizenship means something. It brings me certain rights um, and privileges um, in traveling, um, but it's made up, Mm -hmm. right? And so race is very much like that too. It is something that humans decided upon um, and sort of came to a tacit agreement upon but then begin to make laws and policies um, and shape economies all around this construct. And so this construct becomes very real. So, um, and as Christians, like we're called to construction, like when when God tells us to, to, to go forth and multiply and when God tells us to create, God is giving Christians the right to construct things, right? Mm-hmm. Construct the world. And so um, we construct some good things as humans, and we construct some bad things. <laughs> we construct some things that are neither good nor bad, but we use them for good or bad purposes, right? Mm-hmm. And race is certainly one of those things. So race was constructed, but it's very real because it has a uh, bearing on on how each of us lives and experiences the world. But I won't let it show. Play it cool, cause I still don't know just whether or not we're together. Gonna lose control, cause I Take the lead, hold me close, make me believe. One, two, three, and four. I think we've been here before. Believe you want more, cause you kept me waiting. In the second chapter of your book, you talk about the intersectionality of racism. So, how is it that race is not a standalone issue, as you put it? Yeah. So, just being Um, A particular race does not determine your whole identity. Our identities have so many layers, right? Um, Gender, class, nationality, what it means to be a Black person from America is different from what it means to be a Black person from 
Haiti mm. or from South Africa, right? Um, what it means to be a woman um, in the South might be different from what it means to be a woman in the North. And so our identities are always um, constructed of these multiple layers, mm -hmm. including multiple layers of oppression. And so when we start talking about racism, one of the things that we um, as African-American women have, have realized is that our experience of oppression is not always so easy to pick apart by race, right? When, when things happen, it's, well, did that happen to me because I'm Black? Or did it be ha happen to me because I'm a woman? Or did it happen to me because I'm a Black woman? And there's something unique about that. Mm -hmm. And part of what intersectionality tells us is, yes, all of that is true, right? Mm -hmm. And so as, as intersectional people and having an intersectional identity, it means that some things will happen to me um, that happen more to Black people than to non-Black people. Some things will happen to me because of my gender. And so it's a thing that happens a lot to women. But there's some things that are going to happen to me that are either uniquely experienced or more likely experienced by Black women. So that combination mm -hmm. of living in that intersection um, has, has a pretty strong effect, right? Um, so this idea that then when we talk about race, what we're, and, and racism in particular, that what we have tended to do is centralize the experiences of men and say that what racism is, is the things that happens to black men mm. and other men of color. Meanwhile, we're leaving off a whole lot of experiences that black men and other men of color don't experience so much, but black women and other women of color experience a mm. lot. And that that's part of racism too, but it's gendered, right? And so to fully understand racism, we need to understand how it intersects with these other experiences. We need to know how a black person in the South experiences racism differently from someone in the Midwest, for, for example, right? And so that we mm -hmm. need to understand all the layers if we're gonna understand it fully. Mm. Why is a reckoning of the category of whiteness necessary for racial reconciliation um, and specifically the ra racial reconciliation uh, conversations? Yeah. So a lot of what the racial reconciliation um, movement tries to do is it focuses on race as a social construct and then says, oh, we've got to get rid of race, right? Um, and we've got to get rid of all racial categories. And, you know, I reject that because, again, we construct a lot of things. Mm -hmm. um, and that doesn't mean that we get rid of everything that human beings are have created, right? Mm -hmm. um, and sort of like so a colorblind argument, right? Is, is part of that. It really is a colorblind argument is yeah. we should no longer see people as race. Yeah. Um, and, and that means that um, not only do we erase white identity, but we erase black identity. We, we erase all the identities. They're all equally problematic. And racism, um, because it sees the problem of racism as the construction of difference, right? Mm -hmm. But difference isn't a problem, right? Mm -hmm. God likes difference. God loves diversity. God created a diverse world. The issue is the power that is associated mm. with difference. And in the case of racism, the issue is white supremacy. This, this belief system that white racial identity and white culture are superior to all other racial identities and culture. And it's the way the world, particularly the US is structured uh, along that. So what happens in, in um, racial reconciliation in any type of racial justice work is ultimately it has to deal with the whiteness that white supremacy created. Right. Mm. It has to deal with this 
theme, this notion that whiteness is superior. And as opposed to saying there are no racial identities or just everybody do what you want to do, right? Um, so somehow we have to we have to look at the way in which um, whiteness was constructed as a way of saying who got to hold power, right? In Europe, in the Americas, what became America, that whiteness was constructed to, to say who got to hold power. Mm. Um, and so that part of what we need to do if we are going to work towards a racially just world is we have to address the problem of whiteness. We have to address um, what white supremacy is. We have to address what white racial identity has signaled, um, the privileges that it has, it has gotten people, um, the, uh, the, the way in which it situates certain ways of being above others, um, and even the culture that whiteness has created. So I often, I often tell people to think about the number of, of sins that were created, um, that were committed in one day to keep the system of slavery intact, mm. right? Like it was mm -hmm. in, in, in just in one place. It's enormous, right? Mm -hmm. Because like people wanted to be free. That's why they ran away all the time because people wanted to be free. Mm -hmm. And so the system required incredible brutality in order to maintain itself for as long as it did. And ordinary people, just regular white people, not, not particularly evil white people, just regular white people became very complicit in this system of utter brutality and evil. And so the question that we have to ask is, what kind of culture becomes established that allows ordinary people to behave and to um, acquiesce to such brutality mm -hmm. and such evil? That's the question we have to raise. That's the question we have to investigate and we have to say, okay, what is the, what is the wound at the heart of whiteness? Um, Wendell Berry wrote a book called The Hidden Wound. It's one of his least popular books <laughs> <laughs> in which he talked about the wound of race mm -hmm. and the way it's impacted white people. Um, mm. But we have to look at that and say, what kind of healing needs to take place in white culture to heal the wounds that have been, um, that have been the impact of participating in this evil. Mm -hmm. Towards the end of the book, you talk about that if racial reconciliation is conceivable, then white people must confront their complicity and perpetuation of white supremacy. What hope do you have that those of us who are white in racial reconciliation movements and conversations will adequately uh, confront uh, their own white supremacy? Yeah, I think what hope I have varies depending on the day, right? <laughs> Time of day. How about three. Um, uh, how about three p.m. in the afternoon? Right. <laughs> so I think um, very often there's so much. Like even now, um, in the midst of this pandemic, where you have folks um, in on the state capitol in Michigan, right? People, I think today in North Carolina, mm -hmm. are saying open up the economy. It is largely white people doing that, right? Mm -hmm. um, saying we want to put the economy, we want to get back to work, we want to go to business as usual. When disproportionately, there are um, black people are dying of this disease. Um, disproportionately, um, Latinx people and Native Americans are dying of this disease. Um, and so there is. Sometimes when I'm like, I don't think there's very much hope, right? Mm -hmm. um, on the grand scale, to be honest, I don't think there's very much hope. Mm. The vast majority of white people do not have and do not want to have the spiritual and emotional fortitude that it takes to confront 
the issue of whiteness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I look for hope in smaller places. Mm. I look for hope um, in people and in individuals that are doing the work. I find hope in the, the number of white people I find who have conversations about whiteness, right? That didn't happen some time ago, right? People who can talk about white supremacy regularly, people who can talk about their white racial identity and what that means. Um, people who are trying to figure out what does it mean to relinquish privilege? Can you relinquish privilege? And there are things like the white privilege conference happening, right? People are writing about mm -hmm. whiteness in some very deep ways. And so I think um, for me, I find hope in individuals who are really trying to live out a different ethic. And I find hopefulness in that because I'm aware that social change has never required the majority of the people. We don't need the majority. We don't need all white people to confront their whiteness. We don't even need half of white people to confront their whiteness. We just need enough, right? Mm -hmm. I think there's like a really small number somewhere where they're like, if you get 3% of the people, that's enough to change the tide. Like we just need enough white people to be willing to do the work and to try to get other white people to do the work that we can actually start to form some institutional change. And there are a lot of people who will be kicking and screaming and they can kick and scream, but mm -hmm. we're gonna steer the ship, right? And mm -hmm. so that's where my hopefulness comes in is that I see more of this happening now than I saw 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And so my hopefulness is that that will continue. Um, mm. Intersectionality is a word that people know now. White supremacy is a word that people no longer just associate with skinheads now, right? People mm -hmm. are understanding this language. White privilege is language that people understand now. And so for me, there's hopefulness in that because it's not too long ago that we were very far from that period, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so I look for hopefulness in the small changes. And so um, for me, it's important to have relationships with white people who are doing this work because mm -hmm. um, there are times when I will reach out to a white friend and be like, yeah, I need hope today uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> because the experience, my lived experience today hasn't been good. So I just need to connect with a friend who gives me hope. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think there is hope in the small ways, if we, you know, sometimes we have to manage our hope. Um, and so I am hopeful that the work of reconciliation and genuine reconciliation that is about breaking down racism and breaking down disparity and instituting equity and justice, I'm hopeful that that can happen. And I love the way you chase me as I run away And if I let you catch me, would it be a big disaster Or would you stay? One, two, three, and four Today I have Athena with me and Athena, you are a pop artist um, and I really love like that sort of like dreamy, um, even like some bits and pieces of like dance pop uh, that, that your style certainly has. Um, can you talk a little bit more about like why pop? I mean, there's so many like genres of music out there. I'm sure as like a musician and an avid music listener, you probably listen to lots of different genres. But what is it about pop that really connects with you? I... I love that question because I feel like I've, as an artist and just as like a music fan have jumped, you know, dipped my toe in so many different genres. But um, I think what I love about pop is a, 
I love to give myself challenges that I don't really need. So mm-hmm. like I, um, there's a lot that I want to say and like I, I want to have a lot of depth to the topics that I'm approaching in my music, but mm-hmm. I like the idea of tricking people into feeling something complex by making it um, sort of more digestible and approachable. And mm. so I guess maybe I'm a sociopath and like to manipulate people. I don't know. So that's like part of it. Um, also though, I think that the genre, especially playing with like electronic, you know, I do a lot of m- mostly synth based stuff, program drums. I pr- up to this point, haven't performed much with a live band. It's mm-hmm. mostly just in tracks. Um, but there's like, I sort of like lost, lost my train of thought for a second. Okay, hold on. I like electro, I like pop music because like a lot of it is synthetic and um, I like to create, I'm trying to create a world. Mm. So I'm a concept artist. I, um, I have this whole universe that the music exists in it's called dreamland and that's what i named the first ep after Mm -hmm. but really dreamland is sort of this thing that i came up with to encapsulate what it feels like to process difficult things like trauma or big emotional change um, in an internal landscape and to me dreamland is this place that looks like the real world but just a little bit more sinister but also a little bit more beautiful everything is heightened and surreal Mm. it's kind of like if the upside down from stranger things met Katy perry's teenage dream aesthetic (laughs) it's just like um and so i felt like pop music was the best way to to sort of create that space Mm. Mm -hmm. in an audible landscape because you can do so much with um you know, the way that different tones resonate really can actually stir up like different emotional responses. And there's just such a cool range of things you can do in an electronic space that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I am not skilled enough to do in any instrument to do. So I'm not saying you can't do that, but like, I can't do that. And I want to be hands-on. So for sure, that was a really long answer to a a great short question. (laughs) I love that. No. uh, So clearly there's like a lot of depth within your music. um, and, And I'm sure there's a lot of other music that really influences your own music um but as like you know you're, you've got like poster or like a like a nice little uh cloth uh design oh. artwork and you've got like some other pieces of artwork so clearly like you're a person that appreciates other pieces of art are there like other i don't know like books or visual art or anything that you foresee or somehow um are trying to manifest that piece of art into your own art is there is there something like that beyond music itself um, as far as like a specific, a specific work, not one specific one comes to mind, but mm-hmm. I would yes. And that in that, um, I don't know if you're an Enneagram person. I'm, I am very much an Enneagram person. I'm <laughs> yeah. So I'm a, like a hardcore four. Mm-hmm. I, I could tell. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I definitely would say that being someone who not only creates art but also takes in art is like a core to my whole personality Mm. so everything that I make I would love 
it would be cool to think that it was original, but I don't like suffer that delusion. Like everything that I create is influenced by everything that I love. Mm-hmm. And I love so much. I love the impressionists. Um, and like the post-impressionism era was actually, I was an art history minor. Um, <laughs> and I went to, you know, Paris um, in college and got to go to see all of these beautiful pieces of work up close, but then also the city itself is inspiring. Any city is. Mm-hmm. I could go, I could ramble forever about this, but I think what I'm trying to say is I'm I'm hoping that I'm inspired by everything beautiful. Mm, I love that. Um, you you released like a number of singles in 2019, um, and yeah, I'm just like curious: are there other projects sort of in the works, other songs in the works uh, that you're you're planning on doing, or are you in the process of writing any of that kind of stuff? Yes, um, I'm sitting on several things that are in various stages of being finished. Um, I had a release plan sort of tracked, but obviously that's a little up in the air right now, but um, it's an evolution of, of the concept of dreamland, but now I'm sort of singling in on more of a specific location within that universe called sugar high. (laughs) Um, (laughs) like sugar high and so there's a series of singles that sort of um get a little bit more a little bit more cohesive I think in um the style and the material but take the story a little deeper um working on a series of like I'm going to do some sort of mini comics like a little graphic novel-esque um illustrations to sort of help convey that story in a more specific way than I did last time, because I think mm-hmm. it'll really help. And I'm excited about that. I'm developing that with a few friends. And um, yeah, this this quarantine time has been fun because it's, well, I mean, it hasn't been fun. So please don't isolate that and like use that as a pull quote for me or something. But I've been able to have fun during quarantine uh, because honestly, I put so much pressure on myself to produce and like knowing that release dates and anything active that I could do like that has been postponed for a while I think has given me freedom to really like play around again in a way that I hadn't let myself since I released stuff so Mm. I'm excited that's awesome sort of allows you to marinate on things a little longer and and Yeah. yeah and that's what I did you know before the first round of singles and I developed that world and all these things and it made it so easy and then I've been experienced honestly uh, experiencing so much, a lot of writer's block, you know, mm-hmm. and so, uh, so yeah, I think it also helped me sort out that, Hey, when you're under pressure, you don't make good shit. So maybe like try to stay on top of your mm-hmm. internal balance so that you can keep creating. Mm-hmm. I love that. Well, thank you so much for sharing your music. I really have appreciated it and loved it. Uh, I, I really love like the depth within your pop music. Um, yet, like you know, there's still like that sort of accessibility to it that's really great. So to to combine that, to combine both accessibility and depth in, in such a really profound way, I think is really wonderful. And so, um, yeah, I just want to encourage you to keep doing the work that you're doing. I really think uh, in a lot of ways it, it's really meaningful pop music, and I really hope that it really takes off. Thanks.
I interviewed uh, Reverend Lenny Duncan a while back, uh, and he talks about in his book, Dear Church, about how the category of reconciliation is often jumped uh, by by white people. They often sort of jump the gun to the next step. Uh, and so he talks about uh, sort of this order of repentance, then reparations, then reconciliation. Uh, what so- thoughts do you have about this sort of process or this method towards reconciliation? Yeah. So in in um, I Bring the Voices of My People, I talk about reconciliation as involving four things. The first is confrontational truth-telling. Um, in which the victims of oppression, and in this case, racial oppression, have to be honest about the the burden of oppression, right? And have to be able to tell the truth, right? As opposed to kind of the hand-holding that often goes for racial reconciliation. This is not about making people feel good. It's about telling the stories about the brutality, right? And the way that we've lived with that. And so, and then from there, um, it it involves two sort of parallel processes that are independent. Yes, I absolutely think um, repentance um, on the part of white people and conversion on the part of white people. Mm. So the part of repenting from past harm and learning to be part of someone, be somebody new and making amends for past and current harms um, is absolutely vital. But the other part of that that I'm very aware of, and this is where I think intersectionality helps, is on the part of the victims of racial oppression, people of color, um, there needs to be healing, Mm. right? There needs to be um, healing and liberation. So oppression has to end and the wounds of oppression have to be repaired. And those are not just financial. They are definitely financial, but they are not only financial, right? Mm-hmm. They are also about the the internal wounds. They are about the trauma that has been passed down from generation to generation. And the way that we see trauma um, inhabiting the bodies of people of color, a lot of this current pandemic is because um, people of color tend to have more health problems. And the reason we have more health problems is because of intergenerational trauma, right? We mm-hmm. now have the research to demonstrate that. And mm-hmm. so um, the trauma of our enslaved ancestors means that African-Americans today are more likely to have autoimmune disease, right? Because the body was attacking itself because it couldn't deal with the stress it was undergoing. Um, and that has been passed down from generation to generation. So we have to heal those disparities. Um, we have to heal the ways in which um, people of color have internalized racism so that sometimes our own self-image, the way we see ourselves um, as beautiful or not beautiful, but often the way we treat ourselves can often be harmed. Um, so we have to work at, at, at conversion and repentance for the oppressor, but we also have to work for healing and liberation for the, the oppressed. And then, and then, yeah, and then, and then we can start. After all about, of that. <laughs> after all of that. Um, and somehow, sometimes in the process of that, right? I don't know that, I don't think that all of that has to be complete, but I think it has to be underway before we can actually start talking about building beloved community. Mm -hmm. Okay, now what does it look like for us to build a society, build a just world as healed and liberated and um, repentant and converted people, right? That's that's what we get to. But I mean, he is absolutely right. 
white people love to jump. And, and actually sometimes a lot of people of color too, love to jump to the holding hands moment, right? Mm -hmm. And not do the hard work of actually um, unearthing the pain and then trying to heal the pain and repair what has happened. Mm -hmm. I love that. How do you see I bring the voices of my people being inspiring and liberating theological work? I think it is um, inspiring and, and first because it is grounded in reality, mm. right? Um, it, it is. So I, I really try to like get in the trenches of showing just how deep um, the problem and how complicated the problem of racism is so that this isn't any type of easy answer, easy fix. Um, and that can be um, depressing in some ways. Mm -hmm. And there are certainly moments in the book where it's like, okay, that's heavy. And even in writing the books, it's like, okay, yeah, that's enough. Um, this is mm -hmm. depressing. Um, but then to get in that groundedness and then say, okay, now that we understand what's at stake, now that we understand what the problem is, how do we do this? Right. And so I try to, to end the book with some sense of um, these are the, the tools and the strategies and the spiritual disciplines that we need in order to sustain hope for this. Mm. Um, and, 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 and to end on the reminder that particularly for Christians, I, I, I actually believe that the problem of racism is so entrenched that I don't see much hopefulness for it. Um, remediating racism outside the lens of faith. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think there's a lot of wonderful racial justice work that happens outside the church. Incredible. But when it comes to changing people's lives and their mindsets and their thought processes and their understanding of who God is um, and who God has created us to be in relationship to each other, I think we need faith for that. Mm -hmm. um, and the beauty of that is that faith, especially Christian faith, um, it equips us to, to, to believe in the impossible. So when we look at how deep racism is embedded in our society, it is very easy and very tempting to say it is impossible to create a just world. But the beauty of Christianity is that we believe in the impossible every day. Like our, our whole faith is the story of the impossible and that we fought that story. We've said, yep, we believe that God came to earth we believe that God died and that God rose again from the dead and that God is coming back. We believe all of that. And that is all impossible. Um, and so I think certainly as people who can believe that, we ought to be able to believe that racial justice is possible in this world. And we ought to feel committed to working for racial justice. So I hope that's what people leave with. This sense that yes, the work is really hard and there is hope. Mm. So great. Last question. How can listeners get connected to you and your work? Well, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Dr. Shaniqua. It's my handle everywhere, D-R-C-H-A-N-E-Q-U-A. And my website is drshaniqua.com. Love it. Love it. Uh, Dr. Shaniqua, I, I've just loved talking to you. Uh, you. You just have like this vibrancy as you talk about your work um, and you, you're you so insightful. Um, and I, again, appreciate so much uh, learning from you. Um, and so thank you so much to sharing uh, more and more about your work. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it and enjoyed the conversation. Touch the ground today Looking for love in all the places 41,000 feet They all mean the world to me 
If you would like to connect with both Shaniqua and Athena and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. Oh,